29th, 2011, a 13-year-old boy and his family are protesting on the outskirts of Dara. The Assad regime has surrounded the city and effectively put it under siege after protests escalated into an uprising. People from neighboring towns and villages are appalled by this government crackdown and begin organizing protests to voice support for the anti-government opposition and civilians now trapped within the city. Neighborhoods known for opposition activity have been sealed off, with soldiers sent in to ransack homes searching for anyone on a long list of wanted subversives. Tanks are rolling through the streets and sometimes fire shells at buildings. Water and electricity were cut off when the siege began days earlier, and residents of encircled neighborhoods are beginning to run out of food as well as milk for babies. Those who are old enough to remember the events of 1982, when Hafez al-Assad destroyed large swaths of Hama just to root out a small insurgency, fear that Dara is about to suffer from a similar wave of indiscriminate killing and property damage. The 13-year-old boy we mentioned at the beginning is marching with his family and their friends. Almost everyone from his village is walking to Dara in an attempt to voice solidarity and maybe even break the siege. But their plan does not come to pass. The regime has anticipated that people from the surrounding communities would engage in protest marches. They have already set up a roadblock at Saida, halfway between the boy's village and the city of Dara. The boy continues marching toward the soldiers and Shabiha militiamen, along with his family, friends, and neighbors. They assume that their fellow countrymen, their fellow Syrians, will either see reason and join them, or at least step out of the way. They assume that their fellow citizens will show them decency. Instead, they open fire. Pandemonium ensues as a roving crowd disperses in a panic to avoid being shot. The boy's family lose sight of him in the chaos. He will end up among dozens detained that day by the Air Force Intelligence Directorate, the most notorious entity within the Syrian macabrot. The 13-year-old boy's name is Hamza Ali al-Khatib. listening to What Happened to Syria, a podcast about the country, the people, and their impact on the wider world. This is episode nine, A Thousand Deaths. We're back talking about what's taking place in Syria since 2011 this week. I know that last week, last episode might have thrown some of y'all for a loop starting in 1930, ending in 1970, so we're going easy on you this time. Today, we're talking about the aftermath of the Great Friday. April 22nd, 2011 saw the largest number of people go out to protest in Syria since protesting started the previous month. Demonstrations took place all over the country, including in places where major protests had not taken place before. This day also saw a wave of regime violence that resulted in one of the deadliest days of the Syrian revolution, a record that wouldn't be broken until the following September. This day, plus the massacres of March 25th and smaller-scale incidents of mass murder, have resulted in a death toll closing in on 500 people. You can probably tell from the title of this episode that the number of people killed since March is about to go up. Sharply. 
That's because the Assad regime has, has given up on scaring protesters with warning shots, followed by a mass arrest here and a murder there. They're about to seal off the cities, causing them the most trouble, put them under siege, and send tanks into the streets. One thing that we've mentioned over and over again over the previous episodes is that when Syrian soldiers killed a bunch of protesters in 2011, the funerals for those protesters typically became their own protests. So because of that, on April 23rd, in the aftermath of the Great Friday, where well over 100, if not 200 people were killed in a single day, the day after that, in the suburbs surrounding Damascus, tens of thousands of people have attended the funerals of those who were killed the day before. Once again, people start protesting there. They start chanting, Allah, Surya, Haraya, Wabas, God, Syria, freedom, and nothing else, or other slogans like that. And then the security forces respond by shooting at them. So again, a whole bunch of people get killed, and the next day, this cycle just keeps on repeating over and over and over again. Dr. Samir Enaboud writes about this in his book, Syria, quote, in the first few weeks, the protests were characterized by spontaneity and lack, of, and lack of organization. Within months, the protests had spread throughout the country. It became meaningful to speak of a Syrian uprising that had national momentum, as protests were occurring throughout the entire country from rural to urban areas. The lack of a unified or pre-existing Syrian opposition and the absence of a robust autonomous civil society made the organization and mobilization of protesters difficult. The regime's response to the protests was twofold. On the one hand, regime forces engaged in brutal repression of protesters. On the other hand, the regime also rolled out a series of cosmetic political reforms. Unquote. That was Dr. Samir and Aboud writing in his book, Syria. Now, we've already, we've already talked at length about the various so-called reforms that the regime would dole out. The only reason I'm, I'm mentioning them now is because this would keep on happening. At the end of March, Bashar al-Assad started this cycle where he would announce so-called reforms that wouldn't really deliver on what protesters were calling for. People would come out to protest in larger numbers as a result. Then the security forces would kill a bunch of those protesters. And then suddenly, with more and more waves of anger spreading across the country, Bashar al-Assad, in a panic, he's like, announce more reforms, announce more reforms. So this cycle just keeps on going on and on and on, where supposedly this unpopular emergency law that people that people have been suffering under for decades, supposedly it gets repealed. But then that same day, this counterterrorism law, quote unquote, gets passed by decree because Bashar al-Assad is a dictator who rules by decree. And suddenly that new counterterrorism legislation reinstates almost all of the repressive measures of the unpopular emergency law. So then you get more protests, and then more protesters are killed, and then more people go to their funerals, and then those funerals become protests, and then people protesting there get killed. It just goes on and on and on. Already in mid-2011, we are seeing chaos starting to spread. Really, in, with the benefit of hindsight, Syria would have been so much better off if at some point in 2011, 
Bashar al-Assad had just given up, had just resigned and fled the country. There's tons of states all over the world he could have gone to to live and never and never ever face any accountability from the international criminal court and now we we're starting to see international media start to pay attention to the waves of chaos going on in Syria earlier the media had, the international media had largely been distracted from in early 2011 most of the focus was on either Egypt with the revolution that toppled Hosni Mubarak or Libya, which was quickly spiraling into a civil war. The Syrian revolution did not quickly spiral the way that the Libyan revolution did. So because of that, most people weren't paying attention to the Syrian revolution. Actually, most people most people don't even have never even heard the phrase Syrian revolution. Most people back then in 2011, we'd hear about protests going on there. And that's about it. Protests, massacres by the regime, that's it. And then somewhere around 2012, we started calling it the Syrian Civil War. But as multiple guests on this podcast have pointed out, a lot of Syrians disagree with that. For, for most Syrians, they look, at, they look at what's going on in Syria as the Syrian Revolution and its aftermath. And, you know, after doing all the research for the last nine episodes and talking to these people, yeah, I'm, I, I, I kind of, I've come around to the way that they look at it. I think we do make too much out of the Syrian civil war, as Westerners like me always call it. I think we make, we, we put too much focus on the Syrian civil war, as people, as Westerners like me call it, and not enough emphasis on the protests and quite frankly, the legit revolution that was taking place in 2011 that international media largely ignored. But to give them credit where credit's due, international media did start to pay attention in late April 2011, when they see, oh, this isn't just a one-off. This isn't just like a few protesters here, a few protests in a few cities, and then we're all, then it's all done. No, this thing has taken on a life of its own, and it's just going and going and going. And with that, the Syrian information war that we've talked about in previous episodes now enters a new phase. Previously, the Syrian information war where regime propaganda was trying to discredit the opposition, whom, I should say, were had pictures and videos of regime abuses to back up their case. Previously, propagandists in Syria were trying to discredit the evidence shown by the opposition. This was all targeted, though, at a Syrian audience, because they did not want people, they didn't want other people in Syria to see this, to sympathize on the protesters, and then decide, hey, I might as well go out into the streets and join them. That was then. Now, what's going on is that regime propagandists are pay- are starting to pay attention to how the outside world is reacting to all this. And they're like, ooh, we better get a handle on this right now, or else Western or, or else the international community is gonna is gonna start calling for action against us the way they did the way they're doing with Gaddafi right now. It's at this point when the Assad regime propagandists start start to put out more and more content in English rather than in Arabic. Now the international community is their target audience. And they start doing the same things they were doing in Arabic earlier. They start smearing the protesters as all being terrorists. That this they they wanted they wanted the world to look at the protests going on all over the country and think, oh, those are all Salafi jihadists who want to undo all of Syria's progress and turn this and turn this supposedly secular nation 
into something that more closely resembles Saudi Arabia. Now, this bit about supposedly combating Sunni extremism, this is significant in terms of Syria's relationship with the outside world because Bashar al-Assad had previously assisted George W. Bush in the war on terror. Now, by assisted, I, what I mean by that is the CIA would send suspected terrorists to Syria to be tortured by the Syrian macabre. So with this and other measures, Bashar al-Assad has tried to polish this, has tried to create this image of himself as a partner in the West's war on terror. That's part of the reason why some Assad supporters in the West to this day swear up and down that Bashar al-Assad is necessary to prevent Syria from falling to the hands of extremists. With that, we turn to another book. This book is titled Civil War in Syria by Adam Boxko, Giles Doronsaro, and Arthur Cusne. This is one of those books where if you if you come across it, it's usually cited as Boxo et al. So I guess we're just going to go with that. Boxo et al. write in Civil War in Syria, quote, The inclusiveness of the revolt is even more clearly visible to the protesters since they are young, barely politicized, and strangers to the ideological legacy of the Syrian mobilizations of the 1980s. Their slogans were a key part of constructing this inclusiveness. God is greatest, Allahu Akbar, was a transgressive watchword for a regime generally perceived as atheist, where no one, not even God, is above Bashar al-Assad. This slogan was consensual in a country with an overwhelmingly Sunni majority, and held appeal for the Christian actor Fares al-Helu, whom in April 2011 chanted it in front of the Al-Hassan Mosque in Damascus. Initially, these slogans did not harbor anti-Alawite connotations, especially since others explicitly referred to the unity of the religious communities. Sunnis, Alawites, united, united, united. Sunni wa Alawi, wahid, wahid, wahid. And united, 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 the Syrian people are united. Wahid, 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 ashab suri wahid. Unquote. Y'all may have heard that in one of the uh, sound bites I've been putting into these episodes. Back to the quote. Similarly, the weekly slogan on Friday, May 20th, voted voted on voted on in Facebook and chanted by processions throughout the country was Azadi, the Kurdish word for freedom. While that of June 17th refers to Salah al-Ali, the Alawite leader of the revolt against the French in 1912. While some slogans related to the local related to local issues, others were explicitly national referring to a specific problem or city, bringing together protesters, chanting them across Syria, week after week, in solidarity with regions throughout the country. In this spirit, the protesters adapted nationalist regime slogans by substituting freedom for the names of Hafez and Bashar al-Assad in a call for universal values. Allah, Syria, Bashar, and that's all, or Allah, Syria, Bashar, Wabas, in processions in Dara turns into Allah Surya Allah Syria freedom and that's all Allah Surya Haria Wapas. In addition, videos and testimonials initially contained slogans 
focusing on the establishment of a political dialogue, but these became progressively radicalized to include the departure of Bashar. Unquote. That was Baxo et al. writing in Civil War in Syria. This is a really, really dense but really important academic text written on written about the Syrian Civil War. It's not as it doesn't have the same kind of heart and soul you get from reading a memoir, but it's got the kind of nitty-gritty facts on the ground that you really you really need in order to gain an understanding of what's gone on since 2011. Up until now, the regime has largely relied on intimidation to quell the protests. Things like firing warning shots into the air or arresting a bunch of people and torturing them. But increasingly, it's but it's become increasingly clear that protesters are losing their fear. With that, the regime is now shifting course to engage in a more deliberate strategy of direct lethal action. This was seen in the coastal town of Jabla on April 24th, where tanks rolled into the streets and machine-gunned protesters. More and more, we're going to see incidents of snipers shooting at protesters. There, there had already been times where snipers had fired at protesters. But again, this was largely to intimidate people. Now, these snipers are going to be used less for firing warning shots and more so for inflicting terror by killing people, by blowing people's brains out, killing people at random times. Dr. Yasser Munaf writes about this in his book, The Syrian Revolution, quote, Snipers played a crucial role in the Syrian conflict by initially preventing gatherings in public places and later by terrorizing people living in areas controlled by insurgents. When protests erupted in March 2011, the Syrian regime positioned snipers on rooftops to target peaceful protesters and disrupt demonstrations. Government media claimed that infiltrators, not Syrian soldiers, were shooting at protesters. Syrian army defectors, however, claimed that the real perpetrators were the regime's soldiers. A sniper deployed to Isra near Dara on April 25, 2011, told Human Rights Watch, quote, now, now they quote the sniper, quote, General Nasser Tofik gave us the following orders. Don't shoot at the armed civilians. They are with us. Shoot at the people whom they shoot at. We were all shocked after hearing his words as we had imagined that the people were killed by foreign armed groups, not by the security forces, unquote. Now, Dr. Munaf writes in his book, quote, Since the beginning, the role of snipers was primarily to terrorize civilians, and only secondarily to target military objectives. One sniper, if well-positioned, could control a large section of a neighborhood and keep people inside their houses for extended periods, unquote. That was Dr. Yasser Munaf writing in his book, The Syrian Revolution. Well, I don't know about y'all, but using snipers to indiscriminately murder unarmed protesters sounds pretty damn awful. Unfortunately, that is just the tip of the iceberg for the kind of horror that Bashar al-Assad is about to unleash. Assad has given his government the order to use the Hama Manual, as Sam Daguerre described in his book, Assad or We Burn the Country. Essentially... They're taking the gloves off. They were already doing bad stuff with their with the soft when they took a soft approach with the protesters. Now they've decided they're done taking a soft approach. With that, the siege of Dara is about to begin. According to people who lived in Dara, early in the morning, before dawn, a tank unit rolled into the city. Now the city had already been surrounded 
by soldiers and armored vehicles, but the city hadn't yet been completely sealed off from the outside world. Now, neighborhoods where travel had previously been restricted have now been completely sealed off while soldiers and tanks go on the attack. They went on to raid several several buildings occupied by protesters, including the famous Omari Mosque. Water, electricity, phone lines, and internet were all cut off. The purpose of this was to make sure no nobody started posting pictures and videos on the internet of soldiers and Shabiha militiamen kicking down doors, going house to house, searching for people on the list. If your name was on the Macabre's list of known subversives, or if your picture had been taken at a protest, you were screwed, unless you managed to get out of the city just in time. One of our previous guests, Fadel, talked about this in the episode we did on Dara's uprising. He, we talked at length about the siege of Dara. Just for the sake of chronicling the history, I want to make it clear that on this first day, Monday, April 25th, 2011, dozens of people were killed. Dozens of people were, were killed in extrajudicial executions. The people, the, the, res- the people who lived in Dara, whether they supported the regime or the opposition, they were horrified by this. And for those who supported the opposition, this just hardened their resolve. They're like, all right, they're, they're being rough with us. We're going to stick it out. We're going to show them that we won't be intimidated, even when they switch from intimidation to outright murder. We're going to show them we won't be intimidated. Even when they kill us, we're not going to be intimidated. The next day, dozens of people tried to protest, and they were arrested. Dozens of people in Dara attempted to protest, and they were either arrested or shot in the streets. This whole week, the Syrian soldiers would not allow people to so much as step outside of their homes without being subject to arrest or being shot on the spot. Snipers are shooting everybody they can. People are keeping their heads down in their own homes just so, just to not be killed. But even then, some brave souls still continue to venture out, try to organize protests, and they end up paying the price for it. This is when people from outside of Dara start paying attention and start protesting on the outskirts of Dara to voice solidarity with the people in the city and make it clear to the regime that they're not going to tolerate them doing to Dara what Hafez al-Assad did to Hama in 1982. This protesting on the outskirts of Dara is what led to Hamza Ali al-Khatib being arrested on Friday, April 29th, as we mentioned in at the beginning of this episode. I want to turn next to an article written at written at the time by a journalist named Christian Clanet for for the Le Monde publication. This was published in partnership with World Crunch and Time magazine. The title of this article is Inside Syria's Slaughter. A journalist sneaks into Dara, the ghetto of death. Quote Al Balad went up in flames and the rest of the city followed. In the ensuing weeks, the uprising spread north to Latakia, Banias, Homs, and Hama, even to the suburbs of Damascus. To crack down on a revolt that was gaining ground, Bashar al-Assad's regime wanted to show the country what would happen to those who resist him. As a result, al-Balat is suffering under a merciless siege. Electricity, water, and phone lines have been cut. Without access to supplies, milk and essential foods have run out. The 15,000 residents under lockdown are facing famine. Every day during the evening prayer, thousands of voices rise above the neighborhood for the rest of the city to hear. Milk, water, they scream, their voices barely muted 
by bursts of gunfire. Nearby villagers tried to break the siege on April 29th, arriving at Dara's gates with gallons of water and olive branches for the soldiers. According to Human Rights Watch, that day, more than 200 people died. Residents of nearby neighborhoods are worried about their besieged neighbors and the imminent sanitary disaster. There is no hospital in Al-Balad, and pharmacy shelves are close to empty. I haven't seen my family in months, says Ali, a 19-year-old. They're trapped in Al-Balad. I know my mother can no longer feed my two brothers and three sisters. I would like to help them, but I'll be killed if I get close. Hassan, a, a, cl a friend he grew up with in Al-Balad, was shot on May 18th as he was trying to take supplies to his family. Unquote. That was the journalist Christian Clanet writing for Le Monde in partnership with World Crunch and Time Magazine, Inside Syria's Slaughter. A journalist sneaks into Dara, the ghetto of death. So, to correct a mistake that I just made, the deaths resulting from the siege of Dara aren't just from the soldiers and Shabiha militia guys kicking down doors and shooting people. You also have times where tanks are firing shells into residential buildings and killing tons of people. But on top of that, there's also the issue of starvation. Already, the, regi the regime soldiers are pursuing a strategy of rendering the areas they consider enemy territory uninhabitable. They've cut off access to water, food, medication, and everything else you could imagine that people need in order to live. A crackdown on anti-government uprisings in Syria escalated today when soldiers and tanks stormed the southern city of Daraa. Witnesses said the soldiers fired indiscriminately on civilians while tanks blocked the roads. Human rights activists reported at least 18 people were killed. Meanwhile, people trying to cross the border into Jordan were forced to turn back. Is there anybody out there? Can you hear the sounds? Is there anybody listening to what's going down? Send the SOS out to the crowded faces. Send the SOS out to my favorite haven. A nationwide crackdown is taking place all over Syria in late April 2011. Several cities and towns are being given the same treatment as Dara, just on a smaller scale. I'm talking about neighborhoods being put under literal occupation. This increase in regime activity, this of course is leading to more violence, more, more killings of protesters, more arrests, more pictures and videos of state violence taking place in the streets. It's, it's also at this point that one of the one of the largest and most organized Syrian dissident groups takes notice and comments on the events taking place across the country. The Syrian Muslim Brotherhood was banned shortly after Hafez al-Assad took power in 1970. This banned organization has existed largely outside of Syria since the 1980s. In 2011, they spent the first month of the Syrian revolution staying silent. They didn't they didn't seem to have any interest in getting involved. But now, in April of in late April 2011, they do, start to, they do start to comment on the unrest. It's at this point that they lose their hesitancy about potentially getting involved 
in advocacy for the Syrian revolution. Now, the thing about the Muslim Brotherhood is that they are often described by Assadists as being the real face of the revolution, and that is not true. We keep pointing to Mazen Darwish and Razan Zaituna as examples of people who didn't fit that, who didn't fall into that category. So the whole point of even bringing up the the involvement of the Syrian Muslim Brotherhood in the Syrian revolution. It's, I don't. I don't. I don't want pe- listeners to come away with the idea that this was an Islamist movement. It was a heterogeneous movement. There were different ideological groups taking part in it. A, a lot of times, Westerners have a tendency to to have a gut reaction when they hear that Islamists are involved in something. We hear about Muslim Brotherhood involvement in protests in various countries and. A lot of us just tend to instantly recoil in horror. You know, it's like, oh my god, the Islamists are participating. It's so dangerous. Say whatever you will about their ideology and their their organizing tactics. But the fact is, when you have a country like Syria, where a certain number of people are Sunni Muslim, and a certain small percentage of them have Islamist leanings in their politics... It's not a good idea to exclude them. It's not a good idea to push them out. It's not a good idea to let them push you around either, but but one does have to strike a balance. Yassin al-Hajj Saleh writes about this in his book, The Impossible Revolution. Quote, While it is true that including Islamists in a pluralistic political system is not an easy task, the alternative has been tried and tested, and it is unsatisfactory. Unquote. Now, the alternative that Saleh writes about is how the Assad regime dealt with people like the Syrian Muslim Brotherhood, which is, you know, mass arrests, mass torture, mass executions, mass m- murders in the streets, destroying entire neighborhoods in Hama. That is the end result when you try to exclude Islamists from a political system. Unfortunately, if you give them too much leeway, they oftentimes orchestrate coup d'etats and similar undemocratic moves. Sometimes you just have to cross certain bridges when you get there. When you're living under a totalitarian, secular system, perhaps you have to sometimes join forces with people you disagree with to get rid of the totalitarian. Now that right there is the heart of the Syrian revolution. People from different political groups, religious groups, ethnic groups, People from various segments of Syrian society were coming together because they had a common adversary, the Assad regime. This is what led to the particularly grim day, April 29th, 2011. Rania Abuzaid writes about what happened in her book, No Turning Back. Quote, April 29th was a grim and overcast Friday. After prayers, a man with a megaphone suggested blocking the M5 highway to protest what had become a four-day siege of Dara. Unquote. I forgot to mention that this this scene this scene is taking place in the town of Rastan. Now back to the quote quote Rastan's men and women marched in the thousands that day. They treaded through streets, their voices rising to the people watching from balconies, who showered them with rice and flower petals. No to the authorities, no to control, one group chanted, right fists jabbing into the air as others clapped and repeated a phrase that had brought down dictators. The people demand the fall of the regime. Ashab Yurid Iskat An-Nazam. They wound past the town's multi-story military security branch. It looked empty, just a few guards, all locals, standing inside its black metal sliding gate, 
For an hour or so, the protesters sat on the asphalt carpet, eyes toward an impromptu stage, an amplifier, and a microphone set up in the back of a Suzuki pickup truck. Dozens of men queued near the vehicle, waiting to clamber into it and publicly quit the Bath party to applause. Then, suddenly, a man pushed in line and grabbed the microphone. Guys, there are tanks on the bridge. A line of armored personnel carriers dispatched from the Army's engineering battalion adjacent to the Rastan Dam rumbled over a bridge a kilometer north of the gathering. Tires were set ablaze by protesters, their noxious smoke darkening an already overcast day. A small group of men reached the armored vehicles and borrowed a chant that served Egyptian protesters well. The people and the army are one hand. Several soldiers emerged from their metal cocoons and were carried on the shoulders of these sons and fathers of military men. A soldier held his rifle above his head, non-threateningly, as protesters embraced him. Another joined the chants of, God salute the army. The men stayed on the armored vehicle like a welcoming procession, thinking the soldiers had defected, as they slowly rattled along the highway toward the crowd. Pop! 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 Shots cracked every second. Panic cries to locate the source of the gunfire. The military security branch was what most voices said, so that's where the enraged crowd headed toward the gunfire instead of away from it. A teenager collapsed, his white t-shirt soaked with his blood as a man on a motorcycle scooped him up. The guards inside the military security branch had fled. Stones were hurled at the building, shattering windows. A handful of men, provoked to a frenzy by the gunfire, ripped the heavy sliding gate from its railing and tossed it like a scrap of paper. From another window, the rat-a-tat-tat of, of machine gun fire cut down unarmed men and boys. Unquote. That was Rania Abuzaid writing in her book, No Turning Back. Now, just as Rania Abuzaid wrote about, large numbers of people are publicly quitting the Ba'ath Party. Just, just, to, just to quickly recap, yeah, you basically had to be a member of the Ba'ath Party in Syria to get a decent job. To do this, to publicly quit the party, was next to unheard of prior to the events of 2011. It's because of the regime's response to the protest that some people are so disgusted that they are willing to throw away their professional prospects in order to make their grievances known. It's also at this time that the first wave of refugees begins to trickle into Lebanon. This comes after reports of a massacre taking place in the town of, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of this place, Takala. It's a city on the Lebanese border. Shortly after a massacre reportedly took place on April 27th, refugees started to, started to make their way across the border on foot. Allegedly, Syrian soldiers separated the Sunni residents of, of Takala from the Alawi residents, arrested a popular sheikh, and then when people started protesting this arrest, Tanks opened fire on them, killing at least 40 people. There are also several accounts of residents being arrested and taken away to be tortured. It's incidents like these that lead the Syrian Muslim Brotherhood to speak out about what's going on in Syria. The leadership of the Syrian Muslim Brotherhood put out a statement where they said, quote, Do not let the regime besiege your compatriots. Chant with one voice for freedom and dignity. Do not allow the tyrant to enslave you, unquote. This is a big deal. On the one hand, it does kind of 
It does kind of help the regime in that it, they can point to the Muslim Brotherhood and use them as a boogeyman. But on the other hand, they are calling for they're calling upon their members to work with people who disagree with them, to work with non-Muslims, to oppose the regime. The prospect of them presenting and keeping up a united front really is Bashar al-Assad's worst nightmare. The last thing I'm going to say about April 2011 is that it's at this point when aid organizations that the death toll since since mid-March has risen to more than 550 people. More than 500 people have been killed in Syria since March 18. 500 people in about a month. But it's important to note that that 500 figure came before the siege of Dara had begun and the death toll really spiked. Going back to Dara, for about a week in certain neighborhoods, people have not been allowed to go outside, let alone protest. Anybody who steps outside risks being shot or arrested. At certain points, tanks have fired shells at houses and residential buildings, and paratroopers have been deployed to capture certain buildings known for opposition activity, most most notably the Omari Mosque. Dozens of people have been killed over the span of a week. The morgues are filled. This is exacerbated by the fact that water, electricity, and medicine have not been allowed to reach people in the besieged neighborhoods. This trend will continue for the entirety of the Syrian civil war, where the regime will surround and besiege an area that they've lost control of, and they will render that area uninhabitable. Now, after about a week of keeping Dara completely under siege, the regime does begin to relax a little bit. Gradually, people are allowed their homes for one hour a day to buy, to buy food, medicine, other supplies, just one hour. Eventually, that gets bumped up. That gets pushed up to two hours a day. Gradually, the amount of soldiers in Dara gets reduced, but Dara will remain under occupation for a long time. The uprising in Dara has largely been smothered. The Damascus Center for Human Rights Studies went on to call the siege of Dara, quote, 10 days of massacres, unquote. But the revolution wasn't dead yet. Far from it. The regime knew there were, there were still several opposition supporters across the country, especially in Damascus and Homs. Now that Dara was largely squelched, the regime decided to shift focus over to Homs and use, and use a similar strategy there. Over the course of early May, several clashes took place between the regime and protesters. Well, I mean, okay, let's be honest. Clashes, that's not the best word for it. It's People with guns shooting at people who don't have guns. Certain neighborhoods and homes also had the elect also had their electricity cut off and were similarly sealed off from the outside world, just as had been the case for Al Balad in Dara. While Damascus is the capital of Syria, Homs has come to be called the capital of the revolution. This siege in early May 2011 is just the beginning of a very long and very brutal conflict between the Assad regime and supporters of the opposition located in Homs. Among these people will, will include the famous soccer player turned protest leader, Abdel Basset al-Sarut. We'll have a lot more to say about that guy in a future episode. There's also a nationwide campaign going on where soldiers will kick down doors and ransack homes in the middle of the night searching for people on the list. I know that sounds redundant. I know I've mentioned that in Dara, but I, I need to make it clear. This is happening all over the country. Rania Abu Zaid writes about one of these raids in her book, No Turning Back. 
Quote, the knocking was angry and urgent. Ruha sunk deeper under the bed covers in her grandmother's room. The nine-year-old didn't want to answer the door. She heard water splashing in the adjacent bedroom. Her grandmother, Zahida, was performing ablutions before dawn prayers. Ruha often sat beside her. She loved her electric blanket instead of the coral pink bedroom she shared with her eight-year-old sister. Zahida, a widow, was heavy set and moved with difficulty, slowed by illness and her eight decades. She asked Ruha to see who it was making a racket outside. Half asleep, the gangly fourth grader approached the heavy metal door. Who's there? Nobody answered. So she cracked it open. She saw a wall of guns and military camouflage. Her gaze fell upon two men in civilian clothing, their identities concealed behind balaclavas. Unquote. Americans call those ski masks. Quote, Where's your father? One of them shouted. Before she could answer, her mother, Manal, raced toward her, shielding her eldest daughter behind her back as the column of men stormed into their home. Where is your husband? He's fled, hasn't he? Manal told them he wasn't there. Ruha's father, Mayasara, was at a friend's house, making plans and placards for that week's protest. He was on his way home when he saw truckloads of security men entering his street. The dawn raid across Sarakeb on May 1st, 2011 netted 38 people, including four of Ruha's uncles. That was Rania Abu Zaid writing in her book, No Turning Back. So the time when the regime relied on threats and warning shots, those are over. Now they are shooting to kill and they are hunting people down. This is why Friday, May 6th, was known as the Friday of Challenge by protesters across Syria. Across the country, people still took to the streets in Damascus suburbs and also in Homs, Hama, Banias, and other cities and towns. Even though people knew the risks they were taking, they decided those risks were worth taking. Several people were killed and more people were arrested on this one day. Members of Syria's Kurdish community were also reported to be protesting, while the regime claimed that an unidentified armed group attacked a checkpoint. The next day, May 7th, the regime began yet another siege, this time in Banias. A similar scene to that of Dara and Homs played out over the following days, where tanks rolled through the city and soldiers kicked down doors, searching for those that they had been ordered to hunt down. The next day, May 8th, saw yet another siege, this time in a place called Tafas. All of these cities are going to remain under siege for the, for the rest of the week, while smaller-scale incidents of shooting and mass murder are taking place across the country. Gunfire can be heard in Damascus every day, while tanks periodically shell buildings in Hama. On Friday, May 11th, Assad reportedly ordered his soldiers to hold their fire, but repression and violence still took place. Correction, that was Friday, May 13th, not May 11th. Protests were reported in Damascus despite the repression, in Banias and Dara despite the siege, and also in places like Latakia and Kamishli. Latakia has seen protesting on and off, but Kamishli is a big deal because of the Kurdish community that lives there. This is yet another example of a wide cross-section of Syrian society coming out to protest against the regime in 2011. And this is getting the regime very, very worried. More and more, the regime is going to go out of its way to silence, to silence voices within the opposition who are inc inclined towards pluralism and working with people 
from different r- religious and ethnic groups. Rania Abuzaid writes about this in her book, No Turning Back. Quote, Najati Taraya, a prominent human rights activist and intellectual, pleaded with protesters to stay peaceful, to not fall into what he warned was a regime trap to portray its opponents as violent. Syria is for everybody, he said. Religion is for God and the homeland is for all. On May 12th, regime agents snatched Taraya from the streets of Homs, unquote. Now, there's one important thing we need to keep in mind, and I, I may have done a bad job keeping us focused on this. Not everybody in Syria felt the same way about what was happening in Syria at this time. Some people were very supportive. Some people were very apprehensive. Some people were offended, angry. They were There were some people who did genuinely support the regime who saw the protesters as traitors. But there are also a lot of places where people were just trying to not get involved. It's not, it's not that they opposed the opposition. It's more so that they were afraid of the consequences of, of taking part in protests and opposition activity. Aleppo was known for this. Aleppo was, I, I've said more than once, the, the New York City of Syria at that point. It's this huge, it's the biggest city in the country. It's very diverse. It's an economic hub. The city has prospered under the Assad regime. There are a lot of regime supporters in Aleppo, but there are also a lot of people who who disliked or disagreed with the regime, but didn't say so out of fear. Allah al-Jalil writes about this in his memoir, The Last Sanctuary in Aleppo, quote, In Syria, watching all this happening, we were very frightened, because we knew what might happen if the Arab Spring spread to us. We had already seen what the Assad regime was prepared to do to hold on to power, as there had been previous uprisings against the ruling Ba'athist regime of the Assads during the period when Hafez al-Assad, the father of Bashar al-Assad, the current president, had been in charge. What happened in Hama was the bloodiest. Tens of thousands were killed on his orders in 1982, and the city center looked like a war zone. With all this history fresh in the memory of people like me and my parents, it's no wonder we were frightened when the Arab Spring domino effect reached Syria in 2011. It began in the south, in Dara near the Jordanian border, then spread to Damascus, Homs, and Hama. We were all terrified of what might happen if the revolution, as we called it then, came to Aleppo. Unquote. That was Allah al-Jalil writing in his memoir, The Last Sanctuary in Aleppo. By the middle of May, a lot of a lot of people's worst fears are starting to be realized with all these different cities being put under siege by the regime. As time goes on, more and more communities, more more and more neighborhoods and villages are being sealed off by the military and then and then raided by soldiers. On May 14th, we see this starting in Takala. We've mentioned that place earlier. There was already a massacre a couple weeks earlier there. Now there's several days of massacres taking place, starting on May 14th and going on and going on for five more days. This resulted in dozens more deaths and thousands of people being displaced when they fled to Lebanon. This means that as early as May 2011, we are seeing the beginnings of the Syrian refugee crisis. Within a few years, a majority of the world's refugees will be Syrian. 
May 15th also saw an incident that may sound extraneous within the context of what we've been talking about in this podcast, but we'd also be remiss not to mention, at least briefly mention it. So in the countries that surround Israel, May 15th is known as Nakba Day. The Nakba is the displacement of Palestinians in the aftermath of the 1948 Arab-Israeli War. Again, that's a, that's a load of politics and history that we're going to save for a different podcast. In countries that have large populations of Palestinian refugees, which, you know, even if you're born there, you're still called a Palestinian refugee if you're a Palestinian born in Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, etc., so much for Arab unity, right? So so May 15th is the day when the Nakba is traditionally commemorated. Now, in 2011, Nakba Day saw, saw protests by Palestinians basically all over Israel's borders. On the border with Syria, there were, there were, there were protests organized by Syrian Palest- by Palestinians living in Syria, largely described as being apolitical. It's not really clear how how these protests originated. They're definitely very different from the Syrian revolution protests we've been seeing since March. There are allegations that these were actually that these these protests on the Israeli-Syrian border were actually organized by the regime to create a distraction from the protests going on elsewhere in Syria. This has never been substantiated, but in either case, it's clear that these protests were unrelated to the Syrian revolution protests. These people were not calling for the Assad regime to reform or, or be overthrown. There was none of that. It was about what they called a third Palestinian intifada. These people walked towards the, walked towards the long established ceasefire line, waving Palestinian flags. And then, allegedly, they tried to breach the fence that separates the Israeli-controlled air part of the Golan Heights from Syrian territory. This led to Israeli soldiers firing what they claimed were warning shots at these people. And this is a crowd of about a thousand people allegedly rushing a pretty small military outpost. Now, the, the Israeli government claims that only warning shots were fired, that only warning shots were fired, at these protesters. However, there were several deaths that took place. There were se- several of these protesters were hit by were hit by live rounds and died of their injuries. The exact number is unclear. The most commonly cited estimate is about 23 people. How do you kill 23 people firing warning shots? I could okay, one or two. I could see that, but how do you kill that many or Okay, maybe that number was just regime propaganda. It's hard to say. This So whatever the truth is about the about the protest that took place on the Israeli-Syrian border on May 15th, 2011, it needs to be it needs to be investigated further. Somebody needs to get to the bottom of what actually happened. Regardless of how many people were killed on the Israeli-Syrian border on May 15th, you still have dozens of people being murdered or or abducted across the country by Syrian soldiers and Shabiha militia. Again, we, we go back to, to Kalak, just days and days and days of killing. People aren't even allowed to people aren't even allowed to leave their homes for about a week, just stuck inside with however much food and other supplies they just happened to have before the siege was put down on them. 
So over five days, you're going to see dozens of people killed in Tikalak alone. Also, again, I know I'm probably mispronouncing the place. I'm sure somebody from Syria is cringing right now when they hear me pronounce Tikalak. I'm sure it's pronounced something else. That's the best I can do. But despite the increasing regime violence, there are still protests being organized and taking place across Syria, including even in Damascus of all places. This is often generated by the phenomenon we noted at the beginning of the episode, where people go out and protest, a bunch of them get shot, and then the next day there's a funeral for the people who were killed the day before, and then people show up at the funeral, lots and lots of people attend, and suddenly that funeral becomes its own protest. Well, that is still happening. That is going to keep happening for several months, and we are seeing that in Damascus at this moment. There's also attempts, there are, there are also attempts in Aleppo to organize protests, but these are immediately crushed violently. So what's going to end up happening is that it's going to be the surrounding, the communities surrounding Aleppo, towns and villages, where people will go to protest, including supporters of the opposition who happen to live in Aleppo. There are, there, there's also an increasing number of protests by Kurds in northern Syria including but not limited to supporters of the PYD. The PYD were not the only political entity among the only political entity among Syria's Kurdish community. There are there are some there are some Syrian Kurds who are very supportive of the Syrian revolution and the opposition as it is right now in May of 2011. There's also there are also some Syrian Kurds who view the Syrian opposition with distrust and they kind of and they kind of tend to just keep to themselves. This is this is the case more so with the PYD, including what will eventually become the YPG. I know a lot of what I'm telling you probably sounds repetitive. I get it. But something new did take place in this span of time. There were attempts made to organize a general labor strike across Syria. This is different. I'm not talking about people going out into the streets and venting their grievances. I'm talking about members of the Syrian workforce temporarily paralyzing the Syrian economy. That's what they were hoping to do. They were the, the increasing anger people feel towards the regime, including the anger of moderates who are disgusted by the sieges and the massacres. It has provoked people to get to, it has provoked people who wouldn't have otherwise gotten involved in this to say, we got to do something. So on May 17th, people across Various groups of people across Syria attempt to organize a general strike. They, they saw some success in some towns and cities, but the strike ultimately did not affect Damascus as much as they had hoped, as much as they needed it to. In Damascus and Aleppo, there is still a much higher level of fear than, than in other parts of Syria. Damascus and Aleppo, even compared to the cities currently under siege, still have an extraordinarily high number of soldiers and Shabiha militiamen just all over the place. And this is why when university students try to protest in Aleppo, they immediately get attacked. That's why they end up having to go to places like Al-Bab instead, these towns on the outskirts. So the labor strike was planned as a response to the sieges of Dara, Takalak, Banyas, and other cities that are currently under occupation. And unfortunately, the strike did not have the intended effect. The siege in Tikalak continued. There were reports of Alawite Shabiha militiamen committing massacres, even while the strike was ongoing. So ultimately, the general strike from May 17th, May 19th, 2011, 
It was a valiant effort, but it failed. One reason why it failed is because the Syrian regime is so closely intertwined with the economy. There really isn't a distinction between public sector and private sector in Syria. The aftermath of the failed general strike led to members of the opposition turning their focus to the economy. They realized if we are going to successfully oppose the regime, we have to get to a point where our economy isn't dependent upon the regime. Dr. Yasser Munaf writes about this phenomenon in his book, The Syrian Revolution. Quote, The state and capitalist assemblages became ineffective when the 2011 revolt erupted. The regime tried to contain the rebellion, but as its scope broadened, Assad began deploying a lethal strategy aimed at eliminating all forms of opposition. Wheat, which was used to pacify the population in the past several decades, quickly became a weapon of mass destruction, one in which bread played a central role. Finally, the revolutionaries developed strategies to delink the economy of bread from the state assemblage. Despite the Revolutionary Council's failure to build a sustainable economy, the practices that emerge from the production, circulation, and consumption of bread provide valuable lessons for the future. Unquote. That was Dr. Yasser Munaf writing in his book, The Syrian Revolution. Now, some people listening to this might hear, hear that and go, why the hell is bread so important? Well, if that's all you got to eat and your supply of bread gets cut off, you starve to death. The Assad regime for decades has used subsidized bread as a way of ensuring the loyalty of the working class. A large part of the Ba'ath Party's so-called legitimacy rests in their efforts to provide for the poor. At least that was the case back during Hafez al-Assad's day. That kind of fell by the wayside after Bashar took over. When the Assad regime has sealed off cities like Dara, Banias, Takalak, they cut off the supply of food and medicine to the people in these sealed-off neighborhoods. This includes some people who were relying on state-subsidized bread. So as Dr. Munaf notes, state-subsidized food production is going to become a lethal weapon. If you read reports about regime bombardments from 2012 to 2014, you're going to see a lot of mentions of bakeries being bombed. Now, the average American might read that bakeries being bombed and they imagine some like some boutique restaurant like Panera Bread bougie hipster place on the in their neighborhood but in Syria are referring to communal sources of food which for these neighborhoods that are besieged these these communal sources of food are going to become vital for the survival of several families these various punitive measures taken by the regime relied upon the same miscalculation that they made earlier. They thought that the more force they used, the more fear it would sow among the population. Instead, it just made people angrier. People who are already fed up with the regime are now furious. That was the case on the Great Friday on April 22nd, and now on May 20th, 2011, we also see that on a day that's come to be called the Friday of Azadi. Now, Azadi is a Kurdish word. It's the Kurdish word for freedom. There was a poll on Facebook conducted by Syrian revolutionary activists, and Azadi was the name that these people chose to name this particular Friday. And as we've said multiple times, Fridays are typically the days with the biggest protests because that's the Islamic holy day. People typically have the day off. Basically, in the Middle East, Friday is the day when important stuff happens. 
And if you're a, if your country is undergoing a series of protests trying to dislodge a totalitarian regime, Friday is going to be the day when you see the biggest protests. The fact that a Kurdish word was chosen by a group of people who are predominantly Arab shows that there was, at this point, cooperation between Syrian Kurds and Syrian Arabs who shared a similar outlook. These protesters and activists cooperated while simultaneously there were also groups of Arabs and groups of Kurds who kept to themselves. Oftentimes, when people talk about Syria's Kurdish community, you'll hear people use this phrase, quote, the Kurds, unquote, and there really is no one unified Kurdish group. This is going to be something that comes up again and again and again as events in Syria play out. On Friday, May 20th, thousands of people protest in cities across Syria, including Hama, Homs, Al-Sanamain, Hasaka, Ras al-Ain, Banias, and Latakia. We see the regime's worst fears that protests would erupt in majority Arab areas and predominantly Kurdish areas. That nightmare of theirs has become a reality. That is the immediate result of their campaign of state terrorism that we've been talking about as we've gone over the last month. Instead of cowing the population into submission, it's caused the fire to spread even further. They haven't doused the flame that was set in the first episodes of this podcast. They've just poured more gasoline on it. With all these killings, these sieges, the blockades, and all the other inhumane ways they've treated their citizens. Ultimately, the Assad regime is at fault for the increasing unrest we are seeing. May 20th, 2011 saw huge protests in addition to more killings by security forces. This was especially the case in Homs. This city has already suffered several massacres and it will continue to be a sort of epicenter of mass murder for several years going forward, unfortunately. This, of course, contributes to that phenomenon we've been talking about over and over again since the show began, where the security forces kill a bunch of people, and then the families of those who were killed have funerals for them. And so over the next couple of days, you have funerals all over the country, and then a bunch of people show up at those funerals, and then those funerals become their own protests. Suddenly, you have dead protesters generating live protesters. This just keeps happening again and again and again, because when those new protesters take to the streets after the funeral, a bunch of them get killed, which leads to more funerals. This cycle has been going on for two months now and it will continue for months going forward. And for some reason, the regime just never seemed to get this. For some reason, they kept thinking that, oh, we just have to kill more people. Oh, we just have to torture more people, and that'll get the protesters to give up. And that never happened. It just generated this cycle of never-ending death and suffering. You know what? I'm sorry. I take that back. There was at least one guy, there was one person high up in the regime who sort of appears to have understood this. His name is Manaf Tlas. Now, if you listen to the previous episode, where I talked about Hafez al-Assad's rise to power, you might remember that I'm, I often mentioned a dude named Mustafa Tlas. Manaf Tlas is Mustafa's son. Just as Mustafa Tlas was a key ally for Hafez al-Assad, Manaf Tlas occupied a similar niche for Bashar al-Assad for about the first half of his reign 
In 2011, Manoftalos was one of the people advising Assad to lay off on the protesters, to not do what he ended up authorizing instead. For more on this, we return to Sam Daguerre's book, Assad or We Burn the Country. Quote, Then came preparations in late May for a military assault on Manaf's hometown, Al-Rastan. After the smashing of Hafez al-Assad's statue, the town kept up its protests, though they were met with deadly violence by security forces. Toward the end of April, almost 10,000 people had taken to the streets after an army officer was killed during the Dara military operation and was brought back to his hometown for burial. People blocked the highway with burning tires. The army was ordered to intervene, and about 23 people among the protesters were killed. At night, the local branches of the Ba'ath Party and the Makabrat, as well as all police stations, were set on fire. Now the regime was determined to subdue Al-Rastan and teach it a lesson. Manaf called Bashar and asked to see him. Bashar told him to meet him at Basil's old office in Kasayun and not at the palace, unquote. Okay, so Bashar al-Assad is telling Manaf Tlas, don't come to my office, let's meet at my dead brother's old office. This is how secretive the Assad regime is. Nobody knows everything. Bashar al-Assad will have private one-on-one meetings in secret locations with, with his number two guy, just so that the number three and number four guys don't find out about it. Now, we return to Assad Reburn the Country by Sam Daguerre. Quote, Bashar told him to meet him at Basel's old office in Kasayun and not at the palace. Manaf figured that Bashar did not want others, especially his brother Maher, to know that he was still taking Manaf's advice. Unquote. Okay, yeah, so Manaf Tlas and Maher al-Assad, they, long story short, don't get along with each other. Whereas Manaf was the voice of reason, saying, hey, let's not slaughter protesters in the streets. Maher was the one saying, kill them all, make them suffer. So, we return to Assad, or we burn the country by Sam Daguerre. He quotes Manaf speaking in the beginning, quote, Al-Rastan is mine, I can solve it, said Manaf, clearly understating the severity of the situation in his hometown. All they want is for the state to consider those who died martyrs and for their families to be compensated. They want the wounded to be treated at the government's expense. They also want us to release detainees. Sam Daguerre goes on to write, quote, His plan might have pleased a few pro-regime town elders, but it would certainly would not have satisfied the demands of protesters on the ground. But Bashar relented regardless. He picked up the telephone and called General Abdul Fattah Kudesiyeh, Unquote. Yeah, I know I just butchered the pronunciation of that guy's name. Quote, General Abdul Fattah Qadisiyeh, commander of the Makabrat's military intelligence directorate, to inform him of the change of plans. Manaf was told to speak to Qadisiyeh's deputy, Ali Yunus, the man who personally killed protesters and homes on the orders of Maher al-Assad and Hafez Makhlouf. Unquote. Yeah, so Bashar's younger brother, Maher, and his cousin Hafez Makhlouf, they're among the hardest of the hardliners in the regime. They have a reputation for being not just ruthless, but I'd go as far as to say just bloodthirsty. Now we return to the quote. Quote, It was agreed that a delegation from Al-Rastan would meet Yunus to discuss the settlement's terms. 
The delegation went on to see Eunice the next day, but he refused to meet them and told them to give their demands in writing. The day after, there were more protests in Al-Rastan, the largest ever. Just after, Iyad Makhlouf, an army officer and the youngest of the Makhloufs, visited Manaf at home. Unquote. Again, in the last episode where I discussed Hafiz al-Assad's rise to power, I mentioned that he married Anissa Makhlouf. That's why the Assad family and the Makhlouf family are so close to each other. They are an extended family. So Iyad Makhlouf, the other Makhloufs, they are Bashar and Maher's cousins. Now, Sam Daguerre quotes Iyad in his book, Assad or We Burn the Country. Quote, Rami sends you his regards, said Iyad, and he wants me to tell you that you're too nice. Your solutions don't work. You don't know how to deal with people. He asked him to stay out of Al-Rastan. I spoke to the president and he told me Al-Rastan was mine, said Manoth. It's not. Speak to him again if you want, said Iyad. That night and the following morning, Manoth called Bashar multiple times. Bashar never answered. He normally returned his calls within three minutes. On May 29th, a major military operation was launched in Al-Rastan and three adjacent towns north of Ham City. Tanks and artillery shelled the towns, and snipers shot anyone on the streets. Unquote. This is exactly what we've seen happen in Dara, in Takala, in, in Banias, in so many other cities. This is the kind of... I don't know what else to call it other than just savagery. Frankly, some people say that term's problematic. I think it's fitting for this. Br brutality is just sugarcoating it, basically. Now back to the quote. Tanks and artillery shelled the towns and snipers shot anyone on the streets. At the end of the five-day operation, at least 75 people were killed. The orders to strike Manaf's hometown came via his nemesis, Hafez Makhlouf, the man Manaf had wanted Bashar to punish for killing protesters. A few days later, one of Manaf's cousins from Al-Rastan, a first lieutenant in the army named Abdul Razak Tlas, appeared on the Al Jazeera news channel to announce his defection and urged others to follow suit. He had been stationed in Dara. And now Sam Daguerre quotes Abdul Razak Tlas, quote, you joined the army not to protect the Assad family. You are an honorable officer. Stay honorable. But if you are not honorable, then stay with the Assad family, Abdul Razak said, addressing fellow army officers and barely concealing his anger. There had been army desertions since the start of military operations in April, but this was among the first public and televised defections. Within days, one of Manaf's fellow generals in the Republican Guard was sent by Bashar to see him. Manaf had stopped calling Bashar after the assault on Al-Rastan. Why aren't you calling him, said General Bassam al-Hassan. He's a liar, said Manaf. Call him, insisted al-Hassan. Bassam, he has been lying to me from the start, said Manaf. How? asked al-Hassan. Manaf explained what happened with al-Rastan. With al Unquote. Okay, I know some of this is kind of brutal to listen to with the al this and al the. I'm sorry, I'm not an Arabic speaker. I'm doing the best I can. Al-Rastan is a place. Al-Hassan is a person. Just wanted to throw out that clarification. Now, returning to the quote. Quote, Manaf explained what, what happened with Al-Rastan and all of his previous peacemaking efforts in Duma and how he had been sabotaged 
undermined and threatened by Maher and the Makloofs. Manaf concluded that Bashar al-Assad was pretending he was interested in peaceful solutions while giving the hardliners the green light to crush the protesters by any means. Go see him tomorrow. It's important, said General al-Hassan. The next day, Manaf met Bashar at the presidential palace. They discussed everything that had happened since the first day protesters were killed in Dara and how Bashar's brother and cousins poured fuel on the fires. Let's stage a coup, said Manaf at one point. Against whom, said Bashar, with a mix of, be of bemusement and slight alarm. I will personally arrest Maher al-Assad, Hafez Makhlouf, and the others. But you have to be on board with this, said Manaf in a serious tone. Bashar started laughing. I am your friend and I have advised you all along not to choose the military solution, said Manaf soberly. You know what's your problem, Manaf, said Bashar. Your problem is that you're too soft. There was an impenetrable silence for almost a minute. I am too soft replied Manaf with a hint of indignation, but I will put in front of you two things that you can no longer ignore. Poverty and sectarianism. These are now out in the open. Bashar remained quiet. Okay, continued Manaf. If you think I am too soft, I will step aside and sit in my office and not get involved in anything. Yes, that would be best for now, said Bashar, sounding almost relieved. He then told Manaf that their homeland was facing a conspiracy just like the one their fathers confronted and crushed in the 1970s and early 80s. The enemies were the same, he said. Now, like then... There was no room for compromise. Unquote. That was an excerpt from Sam Daguerre's book, Assad or We Burn the Country. No room for compromise. After all this time that we've talked about protesters who held back from calling for the regime to fall because they thought they could reform, they could achieve reform from within, now we see according to Bashar al-Assad himself, that there is no room for compromise. And that refusal to compromise has now motivated a series of massacres. That has caused the death toll in Syria, the deaths resulting almost entirely from state violence against protesters. As of May 24, 2011, that death toll has risen up to 1,100, according to aid organizations. At the beginning of this episode, the death toll was just over 500. In the span of one episode, this has doubled. There are even videos circulating now of soldiers desecrating and mocking the bodies of protesters they have murdered. There are also rumors circulating that soldiers who refuse to shoot civilians are being summarily executed. While this claim, this claim has come has been called into question in the years since. Given the amount of killing going on, the vast number of unarmed civilians being killed by soldiers, perhaps it's not outside the realm of possibility. Perhaps it's not outside the realm of possibility that soldiers who refuse to slaughter their fellow citizens 
were in turn slaughtered. By May 24, 2011, the regime has made it abundantly clear that they don't have any intention of compromising with the opposition. They don't see compromise as a viable option for their interests. And slowly but surely, the opposition is coming to the same conclusion. They are giving up on negotiating with the regime, on reforming the regime from within. They have given up on that. Now, on May 24th, a coalition of Syrian opposition political groups are meeting in Turkey, in Istanbul. They're getting together to coordinate plans to elect a transitional council and create what could become a Syrian government in exile. The Syrian opposition is making it increasingly clear that they are done with the regime. And more and more, you're hearing people go out into the streets chanting, Ashab Yurid is Scott on Nazam. The people demand the fall of the regime. As we wrap up this episode, I just want to give you a taste of what's coming up next. At the very beginning, we talked about a 13-year-old boy named Hamza Ali al-Khatib. We described the events that led to his abduction by the Syrian Makabrad. We didn't describe what happened to him after he was abducted. Next week, we'll learn exactly what happened to Hamza after the Makabrat took him. Whatever you think was done to him, I promise you, it was a thousand times worse. When Syrians learn of his gruesome fate, this will prove to be the last straw for the opposition. After all the massacres, all the people arrested and tortured, plus the several cities put under brutal sieges, it will be the discovery of what happened to Hamza Ali al-Khatib that convinces people across Syria and increasingly across the world that the Assad regime is completely beyond reform and must be dismantled root and stem. Thank you for listening to What Happened to Syria, a podcast about the country, the people, and their impact on the wider world since 2011. This has been our ninth episode, A Thousand Deaths. Follow us on Twitter, at SyriaPod, so you can stay up to date with future episodes. You can email us at whathappentosyriapodcast at gmail.com. We encourage anyone to reach out to us if you think we got a detail wrong or if you have information relevant to the topics we discuss. If you are Syrian, part of the Syrian diaspora, or have otherwise been personally affected by events in Syria since 2011, please reach out to us. We'd love to have you on the show. If you like what you heard and you want to support future episodes, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash whathappentosyria to support us for as little as $1 a month. You can access bonus episodes for just $3 a month and join our Discord server for just $5. You can get you can also get fan-requested content and a shout-out in each episode when you join as a VIP patron for $20. Shout-out to our patrons on Patreon, Jaeger DePato and Evan Kennedy, who are now joined by... Ryan Sandercock. Welcome, Ryan. Thank you to all of our listeners. I'm Sean Hastings, creator and host of What Happened to Syria. We'll see you next week.